amen and amen. Hey, thanks to Mike and Susan for uh, filling in uh, this weekend to lead us in our time of praise. Yep, I'm on. There we go. That's better. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. In our subject of worship, we're going to go to the words of Jesus in John chapter 4. It's a little bit of a longer story, longer section of Scripture, but it gets to our point pretty good. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to me, sir, you have nothing here to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You have to love the understatement of Scripture. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. So let's change the subject real quick. <laughs> Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. 
When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled at what he, that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding. Father God, I ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to take your truth and to teach us this day. I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to speak, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted up, your son, O oh Father God. And no matter where we are in life, no matter what we are dealing with, whether we are thriving, whether we are barely surviving, whether we are struggling, whether we are overcoming, whatever it is going on in the lives of each of us, I pray for your spirit to take your word and customize it to each of us what we need to hear today so that we will worship more fully in spirit and in truth. Lord, it is in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, our Lord, that we pray and ask for the work of your Spirit this day. Amen. You may be seated. And I want to say welcome to those who are joining with us online today. We're so glad that you are a part of the Oak Park family, especially those who are watching in real time. Remember, you can participate in today's service by texting in comments or questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. That number will be on the bottom of the screen for you. We'd love to hear from you. And if you are texting in for the first time, please include a name. We'd love to be able to pray for you by name and then also follow up to see how we can help you grow spiritually. Those watching at a later date on the recorded version, the offer still stands, but we won't get to you right away. We'll get to you as soon as we can. All right. It is so good to be together today tackling such an important subject, the subject of worship. So i got a couple of questions for you. First off, are you currently engaged in something to better your health? How many of us are on a diet? Obviously not me. <clears throat> how many diet how many diet dieters do we have right now? All right, got got a few. Okay, yes, I need to preach into the choir. Understand that. How many of you have a membership to a gym? How many of you utilize the membership to the gym? Excellent. Congratulations. How many of you in the last few months or perhaps from the start of the year have cut out a negative, a negative habit that you have, that, you, that you've participated in, uh, such as uh, smoking or putting things in your body that you shouldn't have, drinking alcohol or that? Have you, how many of you have made a lifestyle change in the last few months? All right, got a number of people. That's good. Excellent. There are so many things that are, that are available to make our physical health better. And you know what? I encourage you, do those. That's important. But I also want to say congratulations to you because you, by simply being here today, not to hear me, but simply being in church has continually been shown by scientific study to be one of the best 
markers of improved physical, mental, and emotional well-being. So you are doing, you may, you may not be doing actively things to make yourself physically better, but by being in church, by being in a worship setting, a worship gathering, by honoring or seeking to honor God above yourself, you are doing what will bring physical benefit to your life. Now, that's not the reason that we worship. But God in his infinite wisdom has, has wired us so that as we worship, it is for our benefit. It is for his blessing, but it is for our benefit. Worship is so important. And so I wanted to tackle it as we're, as we're looking at this series of what the church is. The church is not the building. The church is not a service. The church is not a program. The church is not an activity. The church is the people who belong to God because they believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That is the church. And one of the things the church does is the church worships. We worship God as God. We worship Jesus as Savior and Lord. So what does it mean to worship? Simply defined, worship is devotion to what we deem as worthy. We are worshipers by nature. We automatically find something in our lives, something in our hearts and our minds to acquiesce to, to pursue, and to give, to give worthiness to whether it be money or prestige, whether it be comfort, whether it be pleasure, whether it be relationships, any of these kinds of things are all things we can and usually do worship. Worship is devotion to what we deem worthy. The, the, the English word worship actually comes from the old English word worthship, that which we determine to be of absolute worth or value. Worth plus ship. Ship is a state of being or a condition of being. So we have found something worthy of the condition of being valuable or worthy. The Greek word has a little bit of a different perspective on it. The Greek word translated worship is proskuneo. And you can actually kind of see one of the English words that we associate with worship in that word. The word proskuneo most literally means to incline one's face to the ground, which means to bow or to even lie prostrate as a sign of humble reverence. And we get that. We understand that lowering your face, lowering your head, lowering your shoulders, even lowering your entire body is a sign of reverence. It's a sign of humility. It is giving of deference it is, it is placing another as more worthy than you. So we have that which is deemed worthy, which is an internal state. We have that which is physically expressed as either bowing or, or looking at the, the lowering of the eyes as a sign of humility. Those are worshipful things. And together, these two words give us a real full picture of what worship is. A disposition of the heart leading to demonstrable actions. We see here, as John, uh, as John records this encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, worship has always been so easily misunderstood. 
Jesus clarifies, Jesus reveals that worship is no longer just about a certain place, a certain time, a certain, certain routine, a certain ritual. Worship instead, now that he is here, is something that is going to be in spirit, is going to be internal, it's going to be from the heart, and it will be in truth. Not just tradition, not just the external forms, but it will be something true. And truth is, truth is consistent. Consistency with reality is integrity. It is that which is accurate. It is that which corresponds to the really real. That is truth. And so when Jesus says well, the true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth, it means it will come from the heart and it will be centered on what is completely accurately true. Now, he's also jumping the gun a bit because he reveals later that he is the one who is the truth. So from the heart, we worship Jesus. That's, that's, that's the bottom line of worship. But in this encounter with the woman, she's a Samaritan. Samaritans were genealogically related to the Jewish people, but at this point, they were considered a half-breed race. They were considered actually worse than Gentiles uh, in some, some eyes of, of Jewish leadership. The Samaritans had a different way of understanding worship of Yahweh. They both worshiped the same God, Yahweh. But the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't include the books of history, the books of poetry, the books from the prophets. So they just had the first five. And in the first five, as Moses lays down the law, that's what they built their worship around. So the Jews built a temple in Jerusalem, and that was the center place, the centerpiece of their worship of Yahweh. But the Samaritans had a different mountain and a different temple where they worshiped. Because in the book of Deuteronomy, God had told Moses to build a place or to, to locate a place of assembling for praise on Mount Gerizim. And so that's what the Samaritans did because they didn't accept the instructions to build the temple in Jerusalem that came in the later scriptures. So you can see there was this difference. It, it doesn't matter exactly what it means to worship, but as long as we worship in the right place, we're good to go with God. That's the perspective. Jesus said, the hour's coming. No, in fact, actually, the hour is now here. The time is now here when there will be no more worship on Mount Gerizim that God pays attention to. There will be no more worship in the temple in Jerusalem where God pays attention to. Instead, True worshipers, those who truly are seeking God and the ones that God seeks will be the ones who worship in spirit and in truth. With Jesus, worship requires more than rituals, recitations, rules, requirements. Jesus' description of true worshipers inseparably unites spirit and truth, the internal and the external. That which we deem worthy and that which we demonstrate truthfully, genuinely. Throughout the, the ancient prophets, in the, in, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, God often chastised his people for disingenuous worship. They focused only on the outward rituals and actions. The prophet Isaiah puts it probably most clearly. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based 
on merely human rules they had been taught. That's pretty cutting. Let's, we're we're going to have a lot of real honesty today. Well, that's coming. So we're going to start with our first bit of real honesty. When we are gathered for worship in a place like this, and yes, Christians do gather together for worship, it is hard often to be fully focused and fully engaged in that, isn't it? Especially when you have a team that's playing at the same time church is going on, you may be a little bit distracted. Sometimes you can be a little bit distracted because you've just had a really tough week. And the words of the songs may just ring a little bit hollow. Sometimes it's not, not the style of music you would like. Sometimes maybe the notes aren't just right. Sometimes the, the pastor's prayers may not just, just hit home. They just, they just sound like words. Sometimes the pastor's preaching just is something completely from a different world. And sometimes churches have Tims that distract people too. (laughs) Amen. We love you, Tim. At the end of our service, Victor's going to give the announcements. And Victor's just one of the greatest additions to our church over the the last uh, little over a year. And I love Victor's testimony. And Victor just had a, a massive work of God in his life. And he started coming to church here. And Victor just kept showing up. We couldn't get rid of him. And, um, Victor revealed to me after, after a number of months, he goes, oh, just, you know, God was moving my life. I just had to come. I had to learn. I had to start, I had to start worshiping God. Got a hold of me. He goes, but the first, he goes, the first couple of months I came here, I didn't understand a word you said. But he kept coming. And so sometimes in worship, we, we, our, 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 our hearts and our minds may not be quite just there. And that's a struggle we all face. But, but when God says, that, when, he, when, he, when he calls out this disingenuousness, this is more about intentionality. This is more about duplicity. This is more about hypocrisy. This is about saying the words and singing the songs and, and reading the prayers, going through the motions, but having a heart that is not distracted, but a heart that is actually dispossessed or dispositioned to someone or something else. So if, if, you, if, if, you're, if, if you're here this morning or other mornings and, and, and worship may be a bit of a struggle because of things going on in your heart and your mind, it's okay. Keep coming. Keep pressing on. Keep sticking with it because God is at work and God's spirit is at work even in the times where we are weak and distracted. But if there's a genuine duplicity in your hearts, Repent. Return the focus to God and God alone. You see, God is the ultimate worthiness. It's not that we deem him worthy. We don't esteem him as worthy. He is worthy. We merely acknowledge it. We merely accept it. And as the only one who is truly worthy of our worship, our devotion in spirit and in truth. Worship is 
the eternal reality. Let there be dark. This is the scene of what's happening in heaven right now. Those are supposed to be killed too, by the way. Use your divine imagination. Place yourself in this vision that the apostle John was given. This is reality. This is what's happening right now. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard, or first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now once I was in the spirit and there was before me a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. For the throne, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne forever and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down, they proskuneo, before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Just a glimpse of the eternal worship that is happening right now in the really real, which is heaven. Not the physically real, but the spiritually real. And there's lots of flowery language, descriptive language, metaphorical language. The picture is overwhelming. It's almost indecipherable with human minds. John was trying to put into human descriptive terms a reality he saw that is beyond description, that defies description. But the point was this, this incredible, overwhelming scene of the really real, the throne of God, is the centerpiece of eternal worship in the universe. Holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty. That's worship. And it's not just singing some songs, praying some prayers, reading scripture, having communion, fellowshipping, things like that. Those are all necessary components, but worship 
is, is, is ascribing to God the glory due unto his name as holiness and ultimate worthiness. This is why true worship emanates from the heart and requires outward expression. That's what's happening in the really real, even as we speak. But since we are not in heaven, we are here. How do we worship in the here and now? Well, the church, the people who belong to God through faith in Jesus, they assemble. And as they assemble together, one of the things they do is worship. We are deeming God as worthy, so we are devoting our time. We are demonstrating his worthiness by giving of him our time and our attention and our hearts and our actions. The church in worship. It's surprising, actually, that in the New Testament, there are very few uh, scriptures that refer to what the church did when the church gathered for worship. There's just little minor snippets here and there, mostly things we just have to, we have to deduce. In the book of Acts, Luke records the first Christians assembling, assembling together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Those are kind of the core four. Those are kind of the four core elements that Christians have always done together because of the new life they have in Jesus, because of what God has done in their lives through Jesus, they go to the apostles' teaching to learn more about Jesus. They fellowship because they are united together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The breaking of bread is, is both a meal and it's also communion more specifically. The honoring of Jesus' sacrifice and rising from the dead through bread and juice and prayer. Prayer is an act of worship. The primary meeting day eventually for the church that we see in the scriptures became the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day. The Sabbath is Saturday. The Lord's Day is Sunday, the first day of the week. It's changed because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. In in the book of Genesis, we have the seven days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. Well, when did God most dynamically re-enter creation to renew and redeem creation? On the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. That is the beginning of God's new and final work to rescue, redeem, and restore humanity. That's why we worship on Sundays. That's when the church came together to worship. It's when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, as to what took place, you are probably well aware that there are churches of all sorts of different names and all sorts of different buildings and all sorts of different styles of worship. There, is, there, there are churches that are very formal with liturgies and printed words and recitations and movements and motions that all have to be done uh, in, in, these, in, in, in timed patterns. And then there are churches that just look like absolute chaos, you know, uh, people running around, tambourines everywhere. Some of them even have snakes and things like that. There's everything in between. Obviously, we are neither of those. But as a church that seeks to be as biblically faithful and biblically accurate as possible, There's some things we get right, and there's others, maybe not so much. 
That's really true of every church. Because the thing is, there is no verse in the New Testament that says, when you gather together on Sunday mornings, this is how the church of Jesus Christ must conduct their assemblies. There is no verse. There's no passage. The closest thing we get is in 1 Corinthians 14. And this is a pretty interesting text. The Apostle Paul is writing, he says, what shall we say then, brothers and sisters, when you come together... So this may not even be an actual formal church service. This may be like more like, like a, a meeting in a home or something like that. When you come together, each of you has a hymn. They're going to sing, even those who can't sing. A word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. But everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, when Paul wrote, there, there was no New Testament in its completed form. They had the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They had probably had portions of what we consider the New Testament, most likely letters from Paul. And at this time, they probably had some, maybe some other writings that just had some recordings of the, of the stories of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus. But they didn't have the complete New Testament. So when people gathered together, the Spirit was, was much more actively involved directly in the lives of people, guiding them to truth focused on Jesus. Hence, the word of instruction, the revelation, the speaking in tongues, and things like that. And those are all important things to look into. We don't have time for that today, but here's the point. Everything must be done in an orderly and fitting way because God is not a God of disorder, but God is a God of peace. That's why there's a little bit of structure. That's why there's a little bit more formality. And that's why we have a little bit of a balance, or at least we strive to have a balance. We are not highfalutin. As you may have seen when you, when you saw the coronation of the King of England, that is a very high church service. Lots of falsetto singing and lots of words re, just read and recited. But we're not absolute chaos either, like some who come from perhaps more Pentecostal circles. These are some things we can learn, though. We learn that when the church gathered for worship, one of the ideals, one of the practices was that it was participatory, not passive. And yes, we err on the side of too much passivity in the modern church. We at Oak Park do that as well. But there's, a, there's, a, there's an idea of participatory, participation. Everybody bringing something to the table, that's what we see in 1 Corinthians 12 as the body of Christ. Everyone has a part in it. All parts are valuable. Not every part has to be heard completely, but all parts are valuable. There's a connectedness and a unity. Faith and worship is to be participatory. But also orderliness is essential because God, that's God's nature. God is the God of not disorder, but of order and peace. We see this as, as with an aspect of reverential worship in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We must continually be reminded 
in the modern age that the church at worship is not for us exclusively. We get very critical. We, the, the, the American church, the Western church, and actually churches in other parts of the world, they wrestle over music styles, music speeds, types of songs. There's different types of preaching. There's different types of church organization, different types of church activities. There's all these things to, to, to focus on and to, and to divide about. I one time got lectured by a guy that we don't do communion correctly. He came from a church that didn't even offer communion every week. Biblically, it is every week. Acts 20, verse 7, you have communion. That's what Christians do when they come together. The majority of churches do not do that. So he was lecturing me that we did not do communion correctly when he himself belonged to a church that messed it up far more than we do. Those are some of the things we argue about. And we can be critical of the music. We can be critical of the message. We can be critical of the lighting and the sound and the chairs and all this kind of thing. We can be so critical when, when we are the focus of worship. But when God is the focus of worship, we fall into the background. The great philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, his name's virtually unpronounceable in the real Danish. I actually tried to do that this week. Uh, listening online to how to pronounce his real name doesn't work. The, the, the mouth does not move in those directions. Very weird. But Soren Kierkegaard said this, people have the idea that the preacher is an actor on a stage and that they are the critics blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they are the actors on the stage. He is merely the prompter standing in the wings reminding them of their lost lines. God is the audience. So when the church comes together, to be honest, it doesn't matter what kind of songs are sung, what songs are selected. It doesn't matter how the band plays. It does not matter what text the preacher is preaching from. It doesn't matter how comfortable the, the pews are. It doesn't matter how tasty the coffee is, although that always definitely helps. It does not matter. It does not matter. The, the, the accoutrements do not matter. What matters is the disposition of the heart to worship and to worship through whatever avenues have been placed before you. It's a matter of the heart. We can learn some other things in the New Testament of how the early church seemed to worship when they gathered together. Yes, there is singing. But singing is both to the Lord and to one another. And the result should always be expressed thankfulness, genuinely expressed thankfulness. Here's honesty moment number two. Oak Park, time for some pastoral chastisement. When the music starts... It does not mean keep talking. It does not mean talk louder. It does not mean finish the conversation. When the music starts on a Sunday morning, it means God is my audience. I will direct my attention to him. We can catch up later. There's before church, there's after church, there's during the week. We live in the most connected society in all of human history. We can text, we can FaceTime, we can always be connected. 
But when worship, gathered worship starts and the music starts, that's where my heart goes. That's where my words go. That's where my mind goes. Focused solely and directly on Him. We're actually making a big change next week to kind of curtail the, the, the problem we've been having the last number of weeks. We're going to make a change at the start of service next week. I'll spring that on you there. But Oak Park, this is where one ways we fail. We, we fail with too much talking. And the music starts, and God is an afterthought because I've got to finish, I've got to finish my story. I've got to finish. I've got to find out what's going on. Now, yes, fellowship and the connection is so important, and we cannot dismiss that. But when it's time to gather together to praise God, we praise God first, foremost, and solely and alonely. That's not even a word. But that's how important it is. It's important enough to make up words about. Moment of honest. Yes, Tim, I am. Okay. Thank you. But it's not just you. It's all that. And I do it too. One of the worst things about broadcasting our services online is that this whole section, you can see the whole first part of the service. Oh, I've taken names of every one of you talking too much during the service. <laughs> do you know who's in the top? You know who's in the top 10? Me. Nine and a half, but no, I'm just kidding. I do it too. This week has been so convicting to me. When the service begins, our focus is on the Lord. Because singing is to the Lord, we praise. But we're not just singing to the Lord, we're singing to one another. We are teaching, instructing, admonishing, encouraging one another. That's what the scriptures say. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul in the book of Ephesians actually links the singing of songs in gathered worship, the singing to one another and to the Lord, as that's one of the ways to be filled with the Spirit. That's when the Spirit of God really enters into our life in a fresh, new, and powerful way, is when we are singing together. We sing to God, we sing to one another. That's part of worship. Part of worship is teaching. The Apostles' Doctrine learning about Jesus, hearing about Jesus, seeing Jesus more clearly, loving Jesus, listening to Jesus more, turning our hearts more and more to Jesus. That is the essence of worship. That's what the woman, the Samaritan woman did. He, he freed her up from worship at, at Mount Gerizim and, and this controversy of the temple in Jerusalem. And you know what she did? She worshiped in spirit and truth because she immediately, her heart was so enlivened, she went back and said, man, there's this guy who knows everything about me. And it's not a good story. It's a bad story. But he knows, come, let's go listen to him. Let's follow him. Come to Jesus. And they came. That's worship in spirit and truth. I'm getting convicted. I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting the work of God within me. And I'm going to come to Jesus more strongly, more devotedly, more wholeheartedly. But it's teaching, learning God's word. The public reading of scripture is also extolled there as well. Yes, communion is to be a central piece, a central component of the church gathered together for worship. As I said, most non-Catholic, most Protestant churches, 
do not have communion weekly. They've got reasons for that. They're not good reasons, but they've got reasons for it. That's their traditions. That's their business, and that's fine. God's got a special lower place in heaven for them. That's all right. I'm just kidding. But communion is so central as an act of worship because it focuses on what Jesus did. And Jesus is the reason we worship in the first place, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, and bringing all of our worship, all of our praises, all of our prayers, all of the attention of our minds, all of the teaching of Scripture back to focus on Jesus. That's the centerpiece of worship. And that's why we have communion together every Sunday. They say, oh, if you do it every week, it gets old. But yet they pray every week and they preach every week and they take up an offering every week. Taking up an offering every week gets old. It does. But communion, thanking Jesus for what he has done. We see also in the scripture that coming together was, was meant to be a time of encouraging greater love and creativity in benevolence especially. The author of Hebrews writes, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds not giving up meeting together, not staying home, not sleeping in, not finding something, anything else to do, not letting anything else take priority or precedent, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. And yes, financial giving is a part of the gathered worship as well giving of money for ministry, aiding those in need, compensating those who serve the Lord. Those are all biblical truths. But that's the church gathered together for worship, which for us mostly happens on Sunday mornings. We have a huge, a growing number of, of small groups that meet throughout the week. Worship takes place in those groups as well. And there's some very good, very dynamic things happening that we're super excited about. And there's even more coming. That's the gathered church. But what happens from Sunday and when you're not involved in a small group, or even if you are, it only happens one night a week. The scattered church. What about when we go to work, when we go to the club, when we go to the store, when we go to the park, when we go walk on the beach? Does our worship cease? Do we cease deeming God as worthy because we're in a different environment? No, Jesus eliminated worship as restricted to a place. Instead, it's spirit and truth. It is constant. It is continual. It is always. Wherever we are, whatever we are doing, we are worshiping in the midst of that. If our heart and our mind is set on the Lord and devote, devoted to serving the Lord and living out His truth, we worship every day. The question is what or who, or perhaps who, capital W, do we worship? If we deem God as ultimately and solely worthy, how do we demonstrate it in our daily relationships, responsibilities, and routines? Let us worship in spirit and truth at all times, in all places, in all circumstances. The Apostle Paul gives us some great instruction. If we're struggling on how to do that and what it means to worship continually, let's go to the book of Romans chapter 12. Worship inspires our daily obedience and gives us guidance for God's will. If you're struggling with decisions, if you're struggling 
with, with knowing what to do to serve God or to, to speak for God or to live for God or to please God, whatever it is. Begin worshiping in spirit and in truth. And God, the Holy Spirit, will speak, will guide, will work, will lead you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul wrote, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's, that's Lord, I'm no longer in charge. I am yours. I belong to you. Do with me whatever you will. I will obey. I will listen. That's a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you are at a decision point, if you are struggling, if you are indecisive, if you are unsure, if, you, if the way forward is unclear, you are uncertain, start worshiping and keep worshiping until the path becomes clear. God's will will be revealed, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The reason most of us struggle so much is because we actually already know what God's will is, we just don't want to do it. Because it's not always the easiest or, the, or the, most, the most pleasant thing to do. But a heart of worship will break down those fears, those barriers, that stubbornness, that selfishness. As we worship, God will work, God will speak, and God will guide. You see, that's the church at worship. Not just on Sundays, but in every sphere, every realm, every relationship that the church the people who belong to God through faith in Jesus are called to do in this world. I'd like to have the team come back up as we prepare for communion because I think all of us have some communing with God to do. We've got to talk, we've got to pray, we've got to wrestle, we've got to repent, we've got to praise, we've got to thank. We need to spend time with the Lord.